Today on Abounding Grace. Our prayer life is not a way to demand anything from God. Our prayer life is not a way to tell God anything. Well, you know, I'm a king's kid, so I can tell God, I can tell my dad whatever I want, and he's going to do it for me. No, no, no. Listen, you got to see this. This one verse alone will change your whole perspective of prayer. Jesus says, glorify your son. And we may think that, you know, make something good for me. Make me popular. Make me, he's asking for that glory from the Father. He's asking for that. But not in the way that you would think. He's asking for God to accomplish his will. He's saying, glorify me in my hour, which is really asking God to make his crucifixion worthwhile. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You laid down your life. That I would be set free. Oh, Jesus, I sing for. Welcome to another day of study in the Word here on Abounding Grace. Our teacher, Pastor Ed Taylor, is the senior pastor at Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. Today, Pastor Ed will have a look at the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. First, he prayed for himself, then the 11 apostles, and finally for future believers. There's a lot we can learn from it and apply to our own prayer lives. So let's join Pastor Ed as he looks at this beautiful prayer Jesus prayed the night before his arrest and crucifixion. John 17, 1 opens up with Jesus finishing what we know as the upper room discourse. And it says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, when you hear the phrase, the Lord's Prayer, almost always you will think of a prayer that you may have memorized as a child in Sunday school or in the religion that you were raised. Actually, hold your places in John 17. Turn back with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. We will often refer to this as the Lord's Prayer. And I'm sure that some of you, in your Bibles, there's a subheading there that says the Lord's Prayer. And now we're going to read this together. Some of you are going to do it by memory. Some of you are going to read it. But we're going to read this together as a church. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. You ready? So, verse 9. In this manner, therefore pray. Read it out loud. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth. As it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power 
and the glory forever. Amen. How many of you read that from memory? Yes, yes. Well, this isn't the Lord's Prayer. This is the disciples' prayer. It starts out with, in this manner pray. He's teaching them and us how to pray. It was never intended to be repeated verbatim every single time as a prayer. Although I can see that being repeated as a prayer is a good thing if it comes from the heart. But it was never intended just to be, okay, this is what we say, 10 our fathers. That's not what it was intended for at all. Jesus is instructing us the heart of the matter when it comes to prayer. Because the disciples needed to learn real prayer that flows from a real relationship with a real God through a real Savior, Jesus Christ. You could call this the disciples' prayer. Now, if you call it the Lord's Prayer, I have no problem with that at all. But really, it's more of the disciples' prayer. If you're looking for the Lord's Prayer, that's in John chapter 17. Because this is where he prays. This is his prayer. Warren Wiersbe calls it the greatest prayer ever prayed on the earth. And the greatest prayer recorded anywhere in Scripture. Now, some of you may be wondering, who is Warren Wiersbe? Warren Wiersbe has written a series of commentaries on the entire Bible. Very simple and very easy to read. And so if you're looking for for commentaries or books that will help you understand the Bible better, just book by book, look up Warren Wiersbe. You can get a lot of his books used, very inexpensive, and and they're very helpful uh, when you're understanding, to help you understand basic introductions to the scriptures. The greatest prayer ever prayed on earth. And the greatest prayer recorded anywhere in the Bible. We're going to spend quite a few weeks breaking down the prayer verse by verse, looking at various insights that will help our prayer life. Because that's the direction that God has us going for the last many months has been great emphasis in our congregation on prayer. Private prayer, public prayer, passionate prayer, everything about prayer. Not, not prayer that we might, not, not a topic of prayer where we, we might condemn ourselves because we can all pray more, but rather than just settling for a weak, anemic prayer life, God is stirring us up as a church to pray. So, so that, and, and the biggest emphasis on that is on our Wednesday night services where not only are we coming together to sing, and not only are we coming together to fellowship and maybe enjoy a meal down in the cafe, and not only are we coming to study verse by verse the Bible like we are now in 1 Kings, but we are spending a a specific amount of time on focused prayer. And so before we even look at chapter 17, I think it's important for us to define prayer. Prayer is simply talking to God. That's the definition of prayer. It's not, there's not a complicated definition of prayer. It's when a person that has a relationship with God talks to him. And you know as well as I do, relationships grow the more we communicate with one another. The more we're talking out our feelings, the more we're talking about life together, especially you married couples, you know, the more you talk about life, the more you grow together. The more you talk about your feelings, the more you talk about what's going on in your life, the more you talk about the kids, the more that you talk, the greater the, the relationship. And the, res- the opposite is just as true, isn't it? Relationships suffer and break down when there's a lack of communication, when you're not talking, when you're not. Friendships break down marriages break down when there's no communication, when you leave people guessing, when you're not talking about things, when you're not being real, when you're being passive-aggressive, when you're, when you're not talking about the realities of life with one another, relationships suffer, and you start to go off in different directions. And before you know it, there's not much of a relationship at all. That, that's the way it is with God. 
That's exactly the way it is with God. The less you talk to God, the farther it seems you are from God. You feel that way. The less that you receive from God. This is one of the things we're learning on Wednesdays. And one of the things that we're learning about prayer and we're teaching is that it's important and it's very helpful to pray with your Bible open. Why? Because when you're talking to God with your prayers, God is talking to you through his word. And he reveals himself through his word. And he might inspire a scripture while you're praying. He might give a direction. He, he might use your morning devotions that you were reading to answer some things that are heavy on your heart. It, it's very important that we pray together and that we're constantly praying. Think about this. Just a word for, for marriages. I was talking to a pastor last night uh, before service. I was just saying, what is it about the marriages? What is the big challenge right now in the marriages that are in our fellowship, directly connected to our fellowship? What's going on in counseling? What are the big issues? And he said without a thought, he didn't even have to think about it. He said, Ed, it's communication. The biggest divide in marriages right now in our church is the lack of real, solid communication, both practically and but especially spiritually. You know, the emphasis upon any relationship is the presence of the Lord. And he added to, he says the the real big issue, Ed, is not just, you know, couples aren't talking. He said the real issue, and he gave me a couple examples, the real issue is, is they're not praying together. They're not praying. They're not talking to God together. they're They're not seeking God together. And it reminded me that I just had the privilege of officiating a wedding not too long ago. A, a young widow in our congregation uh, remarried. And I had invited me to be a part of that. And I was because we walked alongside of her through the loss of her husband and raising her kids. And what an honor. And so I stood on the stage here with them. And, and I had the privilege of officiating that. And one of the things that marriages have done throughout the years uh, is they'll do this sand ceremony. You guys know what that is? So they'll come together and they'll have one, uh, the groom has one color sand and the bride has another color sand and they'll come back to a table behind me and they'll, part of their ceremony is they'll take their sand and they'll pour it together into another container and the sand will all mix up and it's symbolic of their unity. They are now becoming one. It's going to be virtually impossible and take forever to separate all those little grains of sand and that's been a part of many ceremonies that I've officiated over the years. But there's something new now. I saw it at a wedding, and I brought it back here. I was, I was attending a wedding of a friend of mine, his son, and they did something so cool. And that is, they've got this new board, this kind of wooden board that they have with a scripture on it that says, a three-fold cord is not easily broken. And then there's three cords that are hanging down there. There's two of one color and another one. And they go back as a part of the ceremony, and they start to weave together the three-fold cord so that they're reminded. And they take that thing, and they, they put it up on their wall at home somewhere, and they reminded that it's a three-fold cord that's not easily broken. That although they've, all, they've become one, they've really become one in Christ. And they have that reminder forever. Now some of you are like telling your husband or wife, man, why do we do the sand? That sounds so much better. Let's get married again. No, no, you don't need to. You can just buy one off of Etsy or Pinterest and you can get one and put it in your house and do it. You don't need to do that. But I'll tell you what, if you don't have sand, because some of you are like, sand? I didn't know you could do it. If you don't have sand and you don't have the three-fold cord, this is how you remind the threefold cord, you pray together. The Lord's right there in the midst of your marriage, right there in the midst of your home, right there in the midst of your life. Jesus is praying here, and we have a lot to learn about his dependence upon the Father. We have a lot to learn about his communication to the Father. 
the first thing I notice is how he prayed right there in verse 1. The Bible says that he speaks, he opens it, he, he looks up, he opens his eyes, and he begins to pray. Isn't that the exact opposite of how you were taught to pray? Especially those of you that grew up in Sunday school. They taught you how to pray this, this way. First thing you do is you put your hands together. And then you bow your head. And what's the last one? Close your eyes. That's not a bad way to pray. You know, especially for kids in Sunday school wanting to slap each other and throw things at each other. Nope. Johnny, put your hands together. Bow your head. Close your eyes. And let's pray. But that's certainly not the only way to pray. You know that. Jesus is praying the exact opposite. He's praying with his eyes wide open. Some of you are very uncomfortable praying with your eyes wide open. (laughs) Jesus did. You want to know why? Because it's not the posture of prayer that matters. It's the position of the heart. Can you pray with your eyes wide open? If you're driving, I hope you do. Doing your prayer walk around. Can you imagine having your, uh, doing your prayer walk at the park and your hands are folded and you're about, I mean, well, how far are you going to last? I mean, seriously, you're not going to make it. You can pray any way, at any time, anywhere. Just pray. Now, I have to say some positions of prayer are more dangerous than others. Like at midnight after a long day at work and a long day at home, you're laying down, um, laying down on your bed and putting your head on the pillow and you start saying, oh, heavenly, you know. If I'm really tired, I like to pray on my knees because it's very uncomfortable. Even on carpet, it gets very uncomfortable to pray on your knees. It hurts your knees. It hurts your feet. You know, you're going to be in a place that you can set it up so you stay awake. So you're interceding and seeking the things of God. But it's not, Jesus is praying with his eyes wide open. And he's praying out loud. One of the biggest challenges we've seen on Wednesday night is that people don't want to pray out loud with people they don't know. And for a while there, people would just not come. If we're going to pray out loud with one another, I'm not coming. But Jesus is praying out loud here with other people in front of him that they can hear him pray. So it's okay to pray out loud. It's okay to pray, pray silently. We have an example back with Nehemiah. Such a great crisis standing before the king that he prays a real quick, silent prayer in his heart to the Lord. God hears those prayers too. So whether you want to pray out loud, you want to pray silently, you want to pray loudly, you want to pray softly, the issue is just pray. And notice in verse 1, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. That's a technical phrase. Those of you that have been studying John with us, you realize, you remember, we were introduced to this phrase way back in chapter 2 at the wedding in Cana where Jesus says to his mother, my hour has not come. My hour has not yet come. He's not referring to 60 minutes of time, and he's not referring to just a number on a clock. This is a technical term that means the crucifixion. He's talking about his death. And up to this point, he says, my hour hasn't come. My hour hasn't come. Now in this prayer, it's time. My hour has come. The timing of God has come He's just about ready to be arrested, tortured, interrogated, crucified, and buried. His hour. His hour is just about come. Notice he says, glorify your son, verse 1, that your son may also glorify you. That can be misunderstood easily, as I think prayer is often misunderstood We have a whole segment of the church that actually misrepresents true prayer. Prayer is for the glory of God. 
That is the ultimate purpose of our prayer life, is to bring God glory. Prayer is not a way to get God to do what we want him to do, to accomplish our desires, or to demand anything from God, or to command anything from God. That's why I think bowing our heads and closing our eyes is, is a sense of respect. And just, just in the scope of our thinking, remembering that God is God and we are not. And our prayer life is not a way to demand anything from God. Our prayer life is not a way to tell God anything. Well, you know, I'm a king's kid, so I can tell God, I can tell my dad whatever I want, and he's going to do it for me. No, no, no. Listen, you got to see this. This one verse alone will change your whole perspective of prayer. Jesus says, glorify your son. And we may think that, you know, make something good for me. Make me popular. Make me, he's asking for that glory from the father. He's asking for that. But not in the way that you would think. He's asking for God to accomplish his will. He's saying, glorify me in my hour, which is really asking God to make his crucifixion worthwhile. I'm about to die. And he's not asking. He will in Gethsemane, he'll wrestle a little bit with this whole thing. But submit himself to the will of the father. Right now he's praying, I want to be glorified so that you'll be glorified. Well, how that's gonna ha- how's that going to happen? Through his vicious death. As many men and women around the world today are giving up their lives as martyrs in the very same way. For us in our life today, that might look in a way where we say, God, you know, glorify me that I might die to myself so that you'll be famous, so that you'll receive all the glory, so that you will, attention will be turned to you You see, prayer is the means by which God gets man to do what he wants him to do. It's a place of submission on our part. And once you understand this, it'll be a revolutionary change in your relationship with God. That's what Jesus is doing here. Father, glorify me, even if that means being tortured and dying on a cross. You glorify me so that you might be glorified. Whatever you want in my life. He says in verse 2, as you have given him authority, he's speaking of himself in the third person, you've given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life as to as many as you have given him. That was the purpose of Jesus coming to earth for your salvation and mine, eternal life. That phrase eternal life is is used twice, verse 2 and verse 3. The phrase literally would be what we say when we say salvation, when we refer to being saved, You could even say eternal life refers to when we speak of being born again. That's what he's talking about here. That you would be delivered from your sinful past. That you would would renounce your sin and live your life for Jesus Christ. You no longer live in the world, but live for God. That's eternal life. And he defines it in verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We'll get back to that in a moment. Verse 4. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. You might want to mark that phrase, finish the work. Jesus at the end of his life is able to say, I have finished the work. I have finished the work. Now think about that for a second. The last three and a half years of the life of Jesus was what we would call his ministry years or his serving years. The years where he went about uh, loving, caring, teaching, feeding, healing, and teaching, you know, discipling the men that are going to carry on his ministry after his death. But, but you follow his life as it's recorded in the scriptures and you realize, well, Jesus didn't feed everybody. And Jesus didn't heal everybody. And Jesus didn't cast out every demon. 
And there could be people there, because there always, always are critics. There are always those that aren't happy, even with Jesus Christ, perfect man. There could be those around and say, wait a minute, finish the work. You didn't heal me. What do you mean finish the work? Are you saying that, that your work was not to heal me, or you didn't feed me, or you didn't help my child? Or there could be, though, there could be so many around that could say, wait a minute, finish the work. There's still sick people on the earth. There, there are still needs And I think very legitimately, from their perspective, they could say, I wish you'd finish the work by including me. It would be a misunderstanding, of course, because through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is the work. (laughs) Because even on the cross, what were some of his final words? It is finished. It is finished. I think we learned something here from Jesus that's very applicable to us. So that we might be able to say, we finished the work. But there's a key The key here is, notice in verse 4, I have finished the work which you, and in your New King James you may notice, you is capitalized because this is a prayer addressed to this father. And he says, I finished the work you have given me to do. Jesus in his earthly ministry was able to tell the difference between the urgent needs and the important needs. And he prioritized his life to please the father. He prioritized his life to do exactly what God told him to do, which meant that there would be other urgent things around him that he would not be a part of, he wouldn't take care of. I mean, you remember when he went to the pool of Bethesda? We studied that not too long ago. Bethesda, the pools there were surrounded with many sick people, many hurting people. You could get the sense of groaning and moaning of people that were so desperate because they were physically challenged. And you recall Jesus went in there. And how many people did he heal at the pool of Bethesda? One. And everyone else he left unhealed. We don't have it recorded any other place that he went back uh, and went and cleared the whole place out. Nobody was at pool of Bethesda anymore. We don't have that recorded. Just one person. That was what the Father had for him. That one person. That was God's will. We may look at it and go, wait a minute, why don't you heal everyone? But God's will was that one person. And we would do well to understand this in our own lives. That there will always be needs about us, but we need to discern what is the Father's will for our lives. Because there are so many urgent needs, so much. The needs are all around us. So many hurting people, so many opportunities, so much to do. But you're only one person, and you can't do everything. You can't do everything. I look at that in my own life. I am unable, as a pastor, to do everything as it relates to this church. Now, that's not just because the church has grown over the years. From the very first moment I landed in Colorado, I was unable to do everything. I need to learn how to do what God wants me to do and be very faithful and give my complete, my complete wholehearted devotion to my Father to do what He wants me to do. He has the authority to change my schedule. He has the authority to turn me to the left or to the right. I must listen to Him and follow Him. But I can't meet everybody's needs, and neither can you. 
We are going through the Gospel of John one verse at a time with Pastor Ed Taylor on Abounding Grace. And before we part ways, just a few things we want to tell you about. If you'd like to hear today's message again, log on to AboundingGraceRadio.com. Again, we're on the web, AboundingGraceRadio.com. You can also download our free app and access our teachings that way. Search for Ed Taylor or Calvary Church. See if this sounds familiar. You come across an atheist or non-believer that has some questions about Christianity or the Bible. It's about that time you scratch your head in confusion and don't know what to say. Well, allow Ron Rhodes to help in a book called Five-Minute Apologetics for Today. Now, the book is short, giving you one-page answers to common questions and objections. Request a copy today when you support Abounding Grace with a gift of $25 or more. You might think of it as our way of saying thank you. You can do that by calling 877-30-GRACE. Again, the number is 877-30-GRACE. Now, you may not realize this, but we are listener-supported. And each dollar that's sent in is an investment in God's work over the radio and the Internet and will be prayerfully and responsibly used. You'll be helping people all across the nation and around the world grow in their relationship with the Lord and, in some cases, come to Christ. You can make a donation online at AboundingGraceRadio.com. Don't miss our next study in John's Gospel. It's going to be a good one. That's right here on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado, here in Aurora. 